This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive NFML portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meadjohnson.com. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Sunday. We are back. We're uh, back. Daphne, how, are you, how are you, Daphne? It's good to be back. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> so... Um, <clears throat> So we took um, a week off because I was ill with COVID the past mm-hmm. week, and so Bummer. I know there was there was no way to get anything, uh, nothing of quality out, and so the <laughs> so yeah, so there was no point. So that's that's why we were MIA for uh, a week, but we are back with Journal Club. Mm-hmm. We're very excited to be back. And um, there's a few things that uh, that thankfully, I mean, Daphna, you announced on the Twitter handle uh, <laughs> this week uh, that we should probably remind our audience. Uh, number one, mm-hmm. um, probably next week we'll have our first um, Spanish episodes of Journal Club released. Uh, we recorded the first one; it was very, very cool. Yeah. So that, yeah. So that will be done next week. We have our first episode of Tech Tuesday, which again had to be postponed because of <laughs> just me being <laughs> completely out of commission. And then finally, um, for the people who have joined the Neonatal Network, the first mm-hmm. uh, set of grant applications is out and uh, you have a few weeks to uh, apply for grants. Um, it's exciting. Um, yeah, so- we're really excited about that. And it's it's more than a few weeks, right? So yeah, um, I, I wanted to apply some pressure there, some FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, fair. That's fair. Yeah. So that's uh, these are the announcements, and uh, without further ado, um, I think we should get into uh, Journal Club. Sounds Ooh, good. Uh, should I start? Yeah, you start. Okay. So um, the first, I guess, I guess that's the first paper. Um, the first paper I'll be talking about today was published in BMC Pediatrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Oral versus Intravenous Sildenafil for Pulmonary Hypertension in Neonates, a Randomized Trial. First author is Shinmei Shetan, uh, and this is a paper coming out of uh, India. Um, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting discussion, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. making the case that in India, which uh, based on lower resources, they're saying we don't have access readily to nitric oxide and we rely mm-hmm. heavily on sildenafil. And, um, well, and they, I mean, nitric oxide, even here in the States is so expensive. So. Oh, you're, you're telling, I mean, <laughs> for the people who are listening from abroad, we have to do very frequently peer to peer, which is that the <laughs> insurance you. company has some random doctor call us to say, Hey, you're using nitric oxide. Can you walk me through why you're doing that? And mm-hmm. if you don't convince that peer that the nitric oxide is warranted, they, they refuse treatment. Mm-hmm. And I think nitric oxide is, is something that they bill by the hour. So mm-hmm. for the people who don't know, and that's a, maybe a, I love these little fun facts, but if you look on your nitric oxide uh, tanks, people, there's a meter on the tank, which means that as you open it, it calculates time mm-hmm. and that gets billed to the patient. So that's how they know how much nitric you've used. Is, yeah, I mean, it, is any other medication? I, I don't know of any other medication. Know. So this is nuts. One day I asked one of the rest, I was like, why is there a, a meter on the tank? Mm-hmm. And they're like, that's how we know how much you guys are using. It's by mm-hmm. the time you leave the tank open. So anyway, so uh, Dr. Shetan makes the, the group there makes the qu- asks the question, uh, how do we know the difference in efficacy and side effects between the two forms of sildenafil, whether it is PO or IV? And I think this is a very interesting mm-hmm. uh, question because we tend, personally, I tend to use IV sildenafil when PO no longer mm-hmm. is an option, meaning the baby is either in an 
in and around a, an operation or something like that. But I never really knew whether the two were equally in terms of efficacy and if there's any difference that I should be aware of. So this was an open-labeled parallel randomized trial that was designed and conducted in a single center, level three unit, in, ur in an urban academic medical center in Pune, India. Pune? Pune, India? I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that. I don't know. Um, they looked at... Say, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'm doing my best here. Um, it was the, the, the children that were uh, studied were uh, enrolled between February 2019 and December 2020. They were randomized one-to-one, -one, either to PO or IV sildenafil. Now, they looked at late preterm infants, which I think is the proper population, and term infants. Mm -hmm. So anybody above 34 weeks. And um, these babies had pulmonary hypertension, which was defined as having a pulmonary arterial pressure above 25 millimeters of mercury on echocardiogram within 72 hours of birth. They excluded anybody with congenital heart disease, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, lethal congenital anomalies, any contraindication for oral or IV sildenafil, whether it was systemic hypotension, necrotizing enterocolitis, GI bleed. And any baby that did get nitric oxide um, was also not included, obviously, because it, it, was, okay. it was compounding. So a few questions that I was wondering that uh, are interesting from a design standpoint is how did they obviously diagnose uh, mm -hmm. PPHN? So all late preterm and term infants that were admitted to the NICU on nasal oxygen, non-invasive support or invasive support were screened for pulmonary hypertension with an echo uh, every 24 hours for the first 72 hours after birth. And they measured the pulmonary pressures through tricuspid regurgitation velocity. Um, they didn't really have a breakdown as to what they defined as mild, moderate, or severe. That's, that's all the information that we have. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the medications, the oral sildenafil group was started on a um, Q6 hours, uh, one milligram per kilo per dose regimen, and the babies in the IV group uh, were given a loading dose of 0.4 milligram per kilo over three hours, followed by an infusion um, that was 1.6 milligram per kilo per day. So the outcomes that they were looking at were the time it would take for the pulmonary pressures to go below 25 millimeters of mercury. And after they basically, how did they figure this out is mm -hmm. they started the medication and they did functional echocardiography uh, every 12 hours until it was, uh, until the, the pressures uh, were below 25. They looked at some other secondary outcomes, time, uh, time for the OI, the oxygenation index, to decrease by 25%, mm -hmm. the days of ventilation, duration of hospital stay, some outcomes, failure of treatment, meaning they had to recourse to something else to treat the pulmonary hypertension, complications, and time to reach full feeds. So, um, all right, let's get into some of the results. Uh, they were able to enroll 40 neonates out of 2,400 neonates above the age of 34 weeks that were admitted to their NICU. And those 40 neonates were diagnosed with mild to moderate PPHN. The median gestational age and birth weight was about 38 weeks and 2,800 grams. And the baseline characteristics were pretty much the same, except, and not, not, it's not non-significant, the, they had, uh, or the oral sildenafil group had worse APGAR scores at both one and five minutes. Mm. I think it was like five versus seven and seven versus nine. They had a, a bunch of reasons for these kids having pulmonary hypertension. It included, um, mostly meconium aspiration syndrome, pneumonia, uh, birth asphyxia. There was some sepsis. Uh, very few with TTN, RDS, and three cases in the oral group that were quote-unquote idiopathic. Um, so let's take a look. The sildenafil could be tapered um, in 85% of the neonates receiving oral sildenafil and 75% in the IV group. The difference was not significant. 15% of the neonates in the oral group and 25% in the IV group had to be started on some form of other uh, pulmonary vasodilators. Again, not a, not a significant uh, difference considering that the numbers were, were low. Um, so in terms of the primary outcome, they were able to taper the oral sildenafil and the IV sildenafil at about 48 hours of life. Um, and the IQR is a bit different. The interquartile range the interquartile range is a bit different between the two, but it's still 48 hours, so there was no real significance. Um, after tapering sildenafil, three neonates uh, had a rebound increase in pulmonary arterial pressure in the oral group, and five had a rebound in the IV group. Um, 
the only thing that was interesting and that was actually statistically significant were some of the complications associated with the treatments. And these involved hypotension, which was, uh, they saw no cases of hypotension in the oral sildenafil group, but saw four cases out of 20 in the IV group. Uh, and then one baby in the IV group had poor cardiac contractility. None were found <clears throat> in the IV group. So the conclusion of the studies, the study is that <clears throat> both routes of administration of sildenafils for pulmonary hypertension in neonates um, <clears throat> are beneficial, and um, but there's caution regarding the close monitoring for hypotension and cardiac contractility uh, using IV uh, the IV formulation. So I, I don't know if this paper really answers um, fully the question because it's a small study, but it's data nonetheless. And I thought that was interesting. Any any thoughts, Daphna? Yeah, no, I mean, it's important to know because we it's not uncommon to have to switch back and forth. Um, so, or yeah. to use one or the other, you know, as a primary intention. Either. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, for us, babies who are usually very sick tend to be started on nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. But the question mm -hmm. always, I always wonder, like, should I start IV sildenafil instead? Mm -hmm. And would that just work? But I'm afraid mm -hmm. to deal with pharmacy. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, uh, at this point in our facility, it's easier to, it's easier to, to use get nitric. nitric. Of course, yeah. I'm sure. And it's been the same like this everywhere I've worked. Anyway. And it's faster, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes when you need it, you need it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah. Um, okay. Where are you taking us to next? Let's see. I had um, this uh, paper entitled The Effect of Head Positioning on Brain Tissue Oxygenation in Preterm Infants, a Randomized Clinical Trial Study. Um, lead author Zainab Mohamadi. Mohamadi. I even practiced that one before we started today. <laughs> Still. It feels like it should be easy to pronounce. Mohamamadi. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's like, like it's spelled. Yep. It's a nice name. Yeah. Um, this is in the Journal of Perinatology. And so the question really is, does head positioning change brain tissue oxygenation? And so obviously this is an ongoing area of debate, um, you know, because a lot of the IVH bundles use... Uh, midline head positioning with or without some sort of um, incline. And the data is not really robust on whether or not this actually helps prevent intraventricular hemorrhage. So this study did not uh, try to answer that question specifically, um, but was looking at brain tissue oxygenation using NEARS um, to say, does it, does it change brain tissue oxygenation? Right. Or I guess, does it change our uh, NEARS measurements is That's really true. what we can answer. So the study design is it's a it's a cohort study. The inclusion criteria was all preterm infants less than 32 weeks and less than 1,500 grams um, admitted to this uh, NICU um, in this hospital in um, Mashhad. Um, yeah, right? That's, and that's in Iran, correct? Yes. I think that's kind of cool. That was one thing that I was thought was kind of cool. Like it's a... <clears throat> It's a nursing, I'm assuming it's a nurse because the first author is from uh, the School of Nursing and Midwifery. Um, so it's kind of neat. I love to have a ver variety of uh, groups from all mm -hmm. around the world. So that's kind of, I thought that was cool. Um, the babies needed to have no IVH. Um, they had APGAR inclusions, APGAR greater than five at one minute and greater than seven at five minutes, which I thought was good, really good <laughs> for babies less than 32 weeks. Um, and they needed to have um, a hemoglobin greater than 12 in a map, quote unquote, normal, but they didn't give us what their parameters were. Um, exclusion criteria was any baby that had known IV or was found to have IVH and, um, and or need for blood transfusion. So the intervention was the use of six combinations of head positions. And I'll talk about what those are. Um, they had 39 infants that underwent head positioning within the first 48 hours of life. So um, infants were served as their own control group because they were placed on the NEARS monitor to evaluate brain tissue oxygenation at ba baseline, quote unquote, which didn't describe any particular head 
positioning. And then over the course of 12 hours, they cycled through the six positions um, by changing position every two hours and um, measurements uh, were recorded um, in those positions in addition to vital signs and um, uh, like the pulse ox, the peripheral arterial oxygen saturation. So I'll tell you the positions. The first position was head in midline with um, the bed at zero degrees, so no incline. Position two, the head rotates 45 to 60 degrees from the midline to the left at a zero degree incline. Then into the third position, the head rotates uh, basically the opposite, 45 to 60 degrees from midline to the right with the head at zero degrees incline. Uh, the fourth position then is um, just midline with the head inclined 15 to 30 degrees. Position five is basically a combination. So head rotated to the left with incline. Position six is head rotated to the right with incline. So they wanted to look at the differences between those uh, positions. Uh, baseline characteristics, the mean age uh, enrollment was 30 hours, and none of the demographic criteria collected was significant um, in regards to um, the baseline oxygen saturation. So the primary outcome was what was what were the measurements um, in each of these positions? And I'm not sure it's totally <laughs> it's that useful if I just read these out loud. Um, they're pretty similar, um, but there were some significant differences. So um, it was significantly lower in the third position compared so, to baseline. Right. And so the, I think for, for the people who need to have, who are driving, like yeah. <laughs> the first three are like head is head, head is down and it's right. either midline, midline, right or left. Mm -hmm. And then they had, I don't understand why they would have a head at an incline, like almost like as if they had put a pillow underneath the baby's head, right? Um, yes. Yeah, so there are lots of, there are lots of hospitals that, that are using head inclined. Right. So, and then, the, and then in the last three positions, whether it is position mm -hmm. four, five or six, the head is at an incline and is either, mm -hmm. uh, and is either midline at position four, right or left position from five and six. So, right. Yeah. I don't think it's like a pillow. I think it's like most people are doing it, like the the whole like the know, whole bed the is tilt. just yeah, yeah tilted. Incline. But I mean, yeah, it does look like a pillow. On the diagrams, it looks like the rest it of does the look body, like, a pillow. like That's because true. they have the bed. The bed remains straight, and they just have this incline for the head. So it almost like they have. I don't know. I'm just trying to give people a visual representation. I'm I'm not sure. But that's how. an interesting point because that would be different, right? Because it doesn't like on the on the diagrams that they have, it doesn't seem like the angle of the bed on which the the mm -hmm. baby drawn mm -hmm. is resting mm -hmm. is moving. That stays at zero degrees. Hmm. They just are introducing something right before the shoulders where the head is moved up and down. Yeah, it does look like that, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's important to note because then that is a, you know, yeah. Just so people can can decide if that's something that they should change on their way to work today. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so what I'll tell you is it was significantly lower in the third position, which as a reminder is the head rotated to the right with the bed at zero degrees um, as compared to baseline. And in that same position, head to the right um, with no incline compared to the first position, which is midline, no incline, and the fourth position, which is midline with an incline. So it was significantly lower with the head to the right. And in addition, it was lower in the second position, which is head to the left with no incline compared to the first, which is head midline, midline no with incline. no incline. Um, but there were no statistically significant differences between the other um, positions. Okay. Um, in addition, there were no differences in respiratory rate by position, in MAP, uh, mean arterial pressure by position, or in the arterial ox ox oxygen saturation. And in terms of heart rate, the uh, fourth position, uh, which is head midline with an incline, Mm -hmm. um, actually had higher, um, heart rates than the 
first and sixth position, which are midline, no incline, and sixth is uh, to the right with an incline. Okay. And um, there were higher heart rates in the sixth position, uh, which was head to the right with an incline. Um, significantly higher than almost all of the other positions, first, second, third, and fifth. So mm-hmm. it was only not higher than midline with elevation and no turn of the head. So the study takeaways were that in this study, the head midline with the head of the bed elevated um, to 15 to 30 degrees had the most uh, tissue oxygenation and that um, the third position, which was uh, head rotated to the right, sorry, and um, had the lowest, had the lowest uh, saturation. Right. So I'm not, I don't know what to make of this information. So <laughs> I think there is, pro- I think there probably have, is something about head positioning. Right, we right. just, we just don't have enough data. The studies are too small. Um, was this the right, um, was this the right measurement? I don't know. I think, you I know, think, we don't even, we still don't know is, is nears was nears and this fractional excretion of oxygen. Um, is that, equivalent to mm. you know brain saturation you're absolutely right i think because the evidence is so scant mm-hmm. on this topic and i feel like this is something that I, I don't have a long career but every institution i've been at that question comes up and yeah, no one absolutely. has a and so i think as a from 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 us in an editorial role at the podcast we we have to keep bringing up these these studies as they come out especially mm-hmm. when the evidence goes back and forth because i mm-hmm. feel like I cannot quote you the paper, but I feel like the last paper we read said that the head positioning didn't matter when it came to uh, IVH. I think the outcome was IVH. And now this yeah, is saying- Yeah, and the la- there have been two Cochrane reviews in 2020 and 2017 who they just, they didn't even necessarily say no difference, just that there wasn't enough data. Now, for the people, okay, so now let's leave the discussion. Uh, there's one thing I really like about this paper. And if you scroll all the way down uh-huh. in the implications of the paper, the first bullet point is that it says, and I quote, nurses should consider the importance of head positioning to improve brain oxygenation of preterm infants mm-hmm. in the NICU. And we discussed that this is most likely a paper written by nurses in Iran. And to me, it was a great reminder because Daphne and I are actually um, having discussions within our unit about uh, neuroprotection, the, the 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 neuroprotection bundles, and all that stuff that that we have to uh, look at again. Um, and to me, it's interesting that you read this and it, you realize that for whatever reason, this falls on the nurses in mm-hmm. in Iran, right? And and it made me feel that. And we're I think fortunate. it does in our unit too, in most units, right? Right, but I did feel like it almost seems that the nurse makes the decision, right? It mm, almost feels I like it's it's a mm-hmm. it's a it's a public service announcement that these nurses are making, saying, "Hey, if you're a NICU nurse, you should pay attention to head positioning," mm-hmm. which made me feel very fortunate that we have the luxury of time to actually look at this as a multidisciplinary group in our team, mm-hmm. right? We have nurses, we have uh, physicians looking at this, so that's kind of neat to see how other countries are functioning. I'm always very curious to see how mm-hmm. other places do things. Um, and I thought that was a nice little peek into uh, the life of a, of a NICU nurse in, in Iran who has to worry about these things because I guess um, maybe the doctors, because of staffing, because of resources, I don't know, are preoccupied with other issues. Mm. And so this falls on the nurses. I don't know. But this is very interesting to me that this was in the implications. Yes. <clears throat> okay. I'm next, I guess. Mm-hmm. So... So Denifil, we talked about. <laughs> um, let me see. Is there? Oh, okay. So the next paper I wanted to talk about, I'm going to do it quickly, but this is another paper that from an editorial standpoint, I felt like we needed to uh, mention to the audience. And it's a paper published in JAMA Peds, and it's called Precepsin. Like the name of the molecule mm-hmm. is called Precepsin for the diagnosis of neonatal early onset sepsis, a systematic review and meta analysis. First author is Chiara Poggi, and it's a paper out of Italy. 
the idea is that there's this this marker called precepsin. It's the it's from the cleavage of CD14 by circulating bacterial proteases during sepsis. And the paper looks at whether we could use this marker to uh, diagnose early onset sepsis. Um, obviously, um, they're making a strong case for why this would be useful in early onset sepsis. We don't really have good inflammatory markers. CRP, Procal are usually very, very high um, this, with non-infectious, like they, they spike in non with reaction to non-infective stimuli okay. in the first 48 hours. So then babies end up getting worked up for sepsis, sometimes even get empiric antibiotics. So having a marker that could help us make a decision would be very much welcome. Now, this is a meta-analysis. So there's been okay. studies on this on this, on this this compound, on this, on this marker, which to be honest with you, I was not aware of. Um, but if there's a meta-analysis on this in Jamapis, like you, you got my attention. Mm. <laughs> Great. So... Um, they're, they're also mentioning that there's not a lot of studies that have looked at early onset alone. Some studies have looked at early onset and late onset. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, so the aim of the study was, uh, of the analysis, was to assess whether precepsin uh, and its accuracy for the diagnosis of neonatal early onset sepsis. They included studies based on the following criteria. Uh, the studies that included newborns, either term or preterm, uh, Number two, studies with a diagnosis of early onset sepsis as the evaluated outcome defined either as culture-proven sepsis, and that was used for their primary analysis, or as a uh, clinical or culture-proven sepsis, meaning like if the clinician didn't have a positive culture but determined that this was a sepsis, mm-hmm. then that was also considered an outcome. And that was used, the studies that used this as, a, as an outcome was, were used as a, for the secondary analysis. And third, and that's important, right? Uh, I mean, we've talked about this so many times. Our definitions of disease in research matter, right? Right. <laughs> and um, and studies that use precepts and values uh, during the initial workup for suspected EOS. Um, Exclusion criteria, studies that did not include EOS, studies that lacked data on sensitivity and or specificity, studies that were case reports, commentaries, or reviews. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the results. Uh, a total of 12 studies met inclusion criteria for the primary analysis, and then a total of 23 studies, so an additional 11, met inclusion criteria for the secondary analysis. In the primary analysis, among the 12 studies, which included 828 newborns um, of any gestational age, pooled sensitivity and specificity were 0.93 and 0.91 mm-hmm. respectively. So pretty impressive. The pooled diagnostic odds ratio was 131.7. The diagnostic odds ratio for people who, I, I mean, I have to look these things up every single time and I'm mm-hmm. thinking maybe you guys would benefit from reviewing it with me. Yeah, so the diagnostic <laughs> odds ratio is the odds of a positive test in those with the disease relative to mm-hmm. the odds of a positive test in those without the disease. So, um, so yeah, so that's the diagnostic odds ratio. And in this case, it was 131.7. Subgroup analysis showed that precepsin specificity was associated with the inclusion of only EOS or all neonatal sepsis. Precepsin, precepsin accuracy was not associated with gestational age. Um, and, um, but about that, I want to I want to make a little clarification. So when you go into the result, even though the gestational age as a continuum was not really associated with the accuracy, they found no differences mm. in precepts and accuracy uh, between studies enrolling only term infants versus only preterm newborns. Whereas studies enrolling term and preterm newborns showed significantly lower specificity um, in comparison to those on- enrolling only term newborns but not significantly different sensitivity or DOR, diagnostic odds ratio. So it seems to work pretty well on term and a bit Mm -hmm. less when you include the preemies in there. But I feel like that's kind of good because the question usually that arises is mostly for the term babies that, uh, I mean, it's really separation from the parents. And so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Studies enrolling only newborns with EOS showed a higher specificity compared with those enrolling a mixed population of EOS and LOS, late-onset sepsis, but not a significantly different sensitivity or DOR, diagnostic odds ratio. So in terms of the conclusion, uh, the conclusion of the systematic review and meta-analysis suggests that precepsin 
is an accurate biomarker for EOS, um, but that clinical trials are warranted to assess its usefulness and safety to reduce early antibiotic exposure, um, especially in the case of preterm infants. So if somebody mentions presepsin, now you know. Now you know. <laughs> now you know what this is. I would yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't know either, I'll say. Right. So and now we know. Yeah. Um, and it would feel useful in addition to the EOS calculator. Maybe we'll, we'll get better at triaging those kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're all looking for some test, right? That mm-hmm. will help us identify. Mm-hmm. Um, this next paper uh, is entitled uh, Initiation and Duration of Skin-to-Skin Contact for Extremely and Very Preterm Infants, a Register Study. Um, lead author uh, Agnes Linear, um, the Journal of Active Pediatrica, and this is uh, it's done in a unit in Sweden. So, what's the question? The study sought to describe how skin-to-skin contact um, in uh, the extremely or very preterm infant um, and their parents is practiced in uh, Swedish neonatal units. So the study designed as an observational cohort study um, using the Swedish National Quality Registry, which collects data um, for infants. Uh, They were looking at infants born less than 32 weeks. So the inclusion criteria uh, was the extremely preterm infant, um, less than 28 weeks, and the very preterm infant, less than 32 weeks, born between January 1st, 2020 and October 19th, 2021. Um, and they wanted to really look at the rates of skin-to-skin um, care in the first day of life and in the first week of life, and then looking at hours of skin-to-skin per day. Um, They also did a kind of a subgroup analysis to look at infants who had skin-to-skin care data um, in 2019 to evaluate if there was like a difference because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So... So for baseline characteristics, there are 1,483 infants registered in the registry, eight excluded for lack of skin-to-skin data in the first uh, week. The mean gestational age was 28 weeks, but they had a range of 22 to 31, and a mean birth weight was um, 1,205 grams, range 360 to uh, 2,810. Um, so the primary outcome, they looked at time to first skin to skin, and they had um, 782 infants that had information about when was the time to first skin to skin. The mean gestational age of this subset was uh, 28 weeks, and the mean birth weight was 1,175 grams. And for these infants, the overall mean uh, skin-to-skin care initiation time was 32 hours of age, but varied from um, 88 hours for the extremely preterm infants and 14 hours for the very preterm infant, um, which is, I think, quite good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Initiation time uh, varied significantly between gestational ages and between uh, regions. Um. And then of the 539 extremely preterm infants who had data on the time to first skin-to-skin, it said that 5% had skin-to-skin care initiated during the first postnatal day. And I'll talk more specifically about that in a second. Um, Compared to 34% in the nearly 1,000 very preterm infants um, who had, again, 34% in the first uh, postnatal day. Um, duration of skin to skin care in the first, uh, week. Um, so for extremely preterm infants, the median daily, um, skin to skin care, uh, durations, um, they looked at again, the first postnatal day during the first three days and the first seven days. So this was interesting because I told you that they had 5% had skin to skin care initiated in the extremely preterm. Um, but for all comers, the total hours um, for the first day were zero. The first three days were zero. Then uh, these are averages, right? Because the, the interquartile range, there, there's obviously some data here. Um, and then the first seven days were 0.7. And then the remainder of the NICU stay uh, were 3.7 hours. For the very preterm, so less than 32 weeks, the corresponding journey, uh, durations were uh, zero hours in the first day, 1.7 in the first three days, 2.4 hours 
uh, a day in the first week and 4.9 hours for the remainder of the stay. Um, this varied by region. Um, and then when they looked at the different factors, obviously time to skin to skin in the first three days uh, was significantly lower by lower gestational age, by C-section, multiple birth, and umbilical catheter. All of those make a lot of sense. During the remainder of the stay, shorter duration was statistically associated with gestational age and multiple births. I told you they were going to look at the 2019 data to see if there's an impact of the pandemic, but actually the, this did not reach statistical significance. Crazy. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> Other interesting results, um, they looked at some of these medical interventions. So of the um, extremely preterm and very preterm infants with umbilical catheter, um, 20% had skin-to-skin care on the first postnatal day, um, whereas those who did not have an umbilical catheter, um, the, it was 28%. So this corresponded to an adjusted odds ratio of 0.33. Of infants who were intubated, 7% had skin-to-skin on the first day. And of those receiving non-invasive ventilation, 28% had skin-to-skin on the first day. This corresponded to an adjusted odds ratio of 0.54. So the one thing I wanted to mention is that if you really look at their granular data, they have these nice tables um, by gestational age. I mean when you talk about the first postnatal day and the first three days in that first week, they were doing skin to skin care on not many, but some 22 weekers, 23 weekers, four 25 weekers and 43% of 31 weekers. Um, so the study takeaways for that they had, that they wrote were that few, uh, few um, extremely preterm infants and very preterm infants were given the opportunity of skin to skin care with their parents on the first postnatal day. I, I think their data is uh, much more babies, I think, than we do here in the States. Um, one of the other things they wanted to talk about is what is like the median time to skin to skin um, compared with uh, like historical papers. And they were disappointed to say that that hadn't changed much in the last decade, um, again, compared to historical reports. Um, but compared to most of the units that I have practiced in, I think this is tremendous work for skin to skin in the very small babies. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I, I, I we're going to post that, that graph mm -hmm. where we look, where they look at, uh, the time to first skin to skin by gestational age in weeks. It's, it's very nice. It's a very mm -hmm. nice graph. I was looking at this table that you mentioned as well. And I think, uh, it's, it basically gives you the gestational age in week from 22 weeks mm -hmm. to 31 weeks. And it gives you on the second column, any skin to skin care on the first postnatal day. And it's funny because to me, your, your first, uh, tendency is to look at the 22 weekers, right? It's like, right, how, how many, how many are they getting to do skin to skin? And it's, and it's not an impressive number. I think in this table, the 22 weekers were like one out of 39, which was 2.6%. But, but I, they did I, do one 22 weeker. Right. I'm saying whether, <laughs> but that's the thing is that whether this kid was, was, I don't know if this, what, what the palliative care situation was like and what context I, I just, it doesn't matter. What I'm trying to say is <laughs> Don't look at those. Go to the 29, 28-weeker, mm -hmm. the 30-weekers, right. the one that we sort of preemptively don't let the parents do skin-to-skin -skin on the first day because they're still technically like maybe in the neuroprotection bundle or this or that. And then you look at these babies, 28 weeks, mm -hmm. 29 weeks, 30 weeks, and like it's like hundreds of kids that they're letting yeah. do skin-to-skin -skin on the first postnatal day. Yeah, nearly day. 50%. And I think this is where, to me, I'm taking a big takeaway, which is, and the 22 weeker, I mean, it's it's a case to case by case basis, yeah. depending on the parent's expectation. But the 30 weeker, where they get 105 out of 255 infants mm -hmm. to do skin to skin on the first day, that to me is a lesson. And then mm -hmm. I was thinking to myself, okay, like they're so good with skin to skin, their IVH rate is going to be horrible. Mm. They're not. No. <laughs> so you look in uh, table, I don't know, t supplement two. Um, and the IVH grade three to four, they're less than 10%. I mean, they're mm -hmm. basically for the entire cohort, it's 7%. Mm -hmm. So um, it really isn't a case of, oh, they're sacrificing uh, one, for the, other. one yeah. for the other. So to me, that was, uh, again, uh, the Swedes are, are... I mean, there are some schools of thought that it may help prevent 
IBH. Oh, I'm I'm uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a romantic when it comes to that. I do think mm -hmm. that the synchrony between the mom and the baby definitely uh, would help prevent IVH more than anything. But I mean, it's um, it's it's this data that we have to present to to our uh, quality improvement meetings, you know, because mm -hmm. this is this is so good. So yeah, fascinating. All right. Um, what else you got? I got one more and then I have like a grab bag of papers that I just want to mention to the audience because mm -hmm. they were, they were fun, but maybe, yeah. So the next paper I have is in Acta Pediatrica and it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a paper that freaks you out. The title is sodium supply from administered blood products was associated with severe intraventricular hemorrhage in extremely preterm infants. First author is Cornelius Path from Umea in Sweden. <clears throat> like I said, Acta Pediatrica. Um, so what's what's the what's the rationale here? They're they're saying that sodium imbalances such as hypernatremia and large fluctuation in serum or plasma sodium have also have been suggested as risk factors for IVH. They've previously shown this group that 21% of infants in the extremely preterm infants in Sweden study, the Express uh, study, um, had a plasma sodium concentration superior to 150 millimoles per liter during the first postnatal week, most frequently appearing at postnatal postnatal days two to four. The supply of sodium and not fluid volume was the main determinant of plasma sodium yeah. concentration and the risk of hypernatremia in that cohort. So what they're wondering is, um, the aim of the study is to investigate the associations between severe IVH and sodium imbalances, as well as sodium supply and fluid volume in extremely preterm infants. And they hypothesize that a higher early postnatal sodium supply contributes to sodium imbalances and thus contributes to the pathogenesis of IVH. And this is something that to me is fascinating because if you are managing uh, small babies, right, if you are um, having micropremies in your unit, their sodium fluctuates tremendously and whether mm -hmm. you fluid restrict them where you give them more fluid how much sodium you give them it's a topic of what hourly discussions Daphna I mean yeah we tweak those fluids left and right so this, this was a very uh compelling study to me so the study design is that they used um data from the extremely preterm infants in Sweden study, the express study, um, that consists of infant born at 22 to 26 gestational uh, weeks uh, during 2004 to 2007, and they conduct conducted a nested case control study. So for every infant with severe IVH, which was defined as grade three or higher or uh, PVL, one IVH-free control infant with the birthday closest to the case infant and matched for hospital, sex, gestational age, and birth weight was selected. And this was an N of 70 babies. And they included all live-born extremely preterm infants with a gestational age of 22 weeks to 26 weeks. Uh, I mean, 26 plus six. Um, between 2004 and 2007 in Sweden, uh, they included all infants who survived the first 24 hours. They excluded babies with major congenital or chromosomal anomalies, infants who were missing cranial ultrasounds, and infants with missing plasma sodium concentration on postnatal days two and three. So how did they did, do the study practically? So data from for the sodium supply and fluid volume on the day of birth, day one and day two, the first obtained plasma or serum sodium concentration on each day, as well as the first obtained hemoglobin level on each day between the day of birth and day three were retrospectively retrieved from hospital records. The total supply of sodium and fluid included in parenteral and enteral fluids, flush solutions, and transfused blood products. And the content of these products, including the transfusion, was calculated based on manufacturer's information and published values. And the reason I'm mentioning this, obviously, is that this was not a prospective study where they went in each case and computed everything prospectively, right? They, they had to do some retrospective stuff. And, and obviously that has uh, some pitfalls that I just, mm -hmm. just want to make sure that we're aware of before we, uh, we get into the results. So of the 533 extremely preterm infants, 72, which is 13.5%, developed severe IVH. Compared to controls, infants with severe IVH had a higher CRIB score and were more likely to receive sustained mechanical ventilation. Kind of not really surprising. Mm -hmm. um, other potential confounding and matching factors were similar between, um, between the cohort. The risk of developing severe IVH was significantly increased with higher total sodium supply 
and with higher total fluid volume administered to the infant until postnatal day two. And that to me is a, is a huge result. Mm -hmm. um, we are careful um, in the sodium supply, obviously, and that's something that we can work on, but there's more and more data, especially coming from groups looking at hemodynamics where higher total fluid volume Get get really cranked up, right? Um, in the first few yeah. days of life, and I'm and I'm I'm doing it as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that so that's why the, the, this 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 uh, result is is a bit concerning. Um, and now this is the one that is crazy. When when they excluded the amount of sodium the infant received from transfused blood products from the calculation of sodium supply and fluid volume, respectively, the results did not remain significant. So they were able to identify mm. that if they removed the transfused blood products from the calculations, those results lost significance. Mm -hmm. Infants with severe IVH received 45% of their total sodium intake from transfusions. Wow. Erythrocyte and plasma transfusion accounted for the vast majority of sodium exposure. We'll post the graph. I mean, it's pretty impressive, mm -hmm. uh, the sodium supply from the, from the blood products. One of the seven university hospitals included uh, in the study had more strict transfusion guidelines, resulting in infants receiving less mean daily transfusion volume between birth and day two. And this was, I mean, I mean, uh, so the ml per day difference was two point two versus ten point one. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that's that's a lot of transfusion in the first mm -hmm. few days. In the hospital with the more strict guidelines, eight percent of the infants developed severe IVH compared to 15% in the rest of the express cohort. The incidence of hypernatremia and the magnitude of fluctuation or peak concentrations of sodium did not differ significantly between cases and control. Um, high plasma sodium concentration or large sodium fluctuations were not associated with severe IVH, which is also something that sometimes you're like, when we see these changes in right, what is, what is mm -hmm. it called in the in the we have to know this for pediatric boards, right? Cerebropontine myelinosis, right? Mm -hmm. When you when you when you mess up. Listen, this. it's a you know, <laughs> it's one of the things I'm <laughs> totally worried about. Most I know, afraid of. <laughs> but and there's and there's really not much data, so that's kind nope. of interesting to see that that large fluctuations here are not responsible for severe IVH. I mean, yeah. again. Right, we've had this discussion because it's like they don't which, have much. Which you know, I think I mean, there's previous data that I think argues that there there is there is a I concern know. for fluctuations. The, the theoretical discussion is like they don't have myelin; they're so small. So what's the big deal, right? And and then, but there's not much data out there. So in conclusions, the results suggest that there's a relationship between sodium-rich transfusion of blood products and severe IVH in extremely preterm infants. It is unclear whether this is an effect of sodium load, volume load, or some other transfusion-related factor. So the takeaways for me is that it reinforces my thinking that we should maybe uh, try to get some EPO in these kids as soon as possible, try to reduce mm. the amount of blood transfusions. And I guess this is not something that, I mean, I feel like for us, we tend to take into account the fluid volume that we are giving with the transfusion. So you're giving what, 10 to 15 amount per kilo per day. We're mm -hmm. trying to account into our total fluid volume for the day so that we don't overload the babies, but we never looked at how much sodium does that account for. Um, so that's interesting, especially on day two, where your TPN may start to have a little bit of sodium, where you may be infusing some sodium somewhere, mm -hmm. whether it's a sodium acetate side port or something. So it's a fascinating yeah, study. Yeah, where I trained, the sodium load was a huge point of debate and discussion. And yet, we we were not including the sodium load from transfusions. So that... But it's interesting because we don't transfuse. I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I'm talking about our group now, but like, I don't think we transfuse that many kids on day one, even on day two. Um, but. Well, and uh, it begs the question, right? If you're transfusing, <laughs> if you're needing to transfuse a lot in those first few days, I mean, there's bleeding happening, right? So, yeah. so yeah, is it like you're saying, is it a chicken or the egg? Right. And on that note, we'll move on to another paper. <laughs> We've given enough uh, skepticism. Okay, so you had some other papers you wanted to just alert us to. Yeah, I think um, 
there's some very cool papers mm -hmm. that didn't really make it to the podcast. And I feel like if we if we had reviewed them thoroughly, we would have said, all right, next time. And they would have never mm -hmm. made it to next time. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to go quickly over them. Yes, there are so many papers coming out that we don't want we don't want to miss. Right. You know, at least that way you guys know that they're out there. So there's this study called Thrombocytopenia, an insufficient thrombopoietin production in humans small for gestational age infants. First author, Satoru Takeshita from Japan. This is a study um, that basically looks at SGA infants compared to non-SGA infants and is looking at the platelet count, the thrombocytopenia, and wants to know, is there any relationship between the immature uh, platelets and the thrombopoietin in these infants? Mm -hmm. So the immature platelets are basically, it's a useful marker of thrombopoietic activity. They're basically large platelets released by the in circulation by the by the bone marrow uh, and they're kind of anal analogous to the reticulocytes in the red blood cells and the thrombopoietin is like erythropoietin right so glycoprotein hormone made by the liver and the kidney which basically regulates platelet production so this was a prospective study of 202 infants with the gestational age less than 37 weeks 30 of them were sga and 172 were non-sga uh, thrombocytopenia was seen in 17 out of the 30 SGA infants and 40 of the 172 non-SGA infants. And they looked at the lowest possible hemoglobin and platelet level within the first 72 hours. How they did that exactly, I'm not exactly sure. They don't really describe how often they mm. were taking blood. But the results were interesting. The platelet count was significantly lower in SGA infants than non-SGA mm -hmm. infants at the time of the lowest platelet count within 72 hours after birth. In SGA, uh, it was 150, and the non-SGA was 233,000, but not after seven days of age. So this was really transitory. Um, when they looked, the platelet count and the immature platelet factor were negatively correlated in non-SGA infants, but not in SGA infants. So let me explain that to you. So you have, and this was the same for the thrombopoietin. So as your platelet count is lower, you're expecting your immature platelet fraction to be higher. And they show that in the graph, right? It's, it's mm. basically a downward slope mm -hmm. because if your platelets are low, you should be making, you should be actively trying to replace whatever you don't have. Same thing with thrombopoietin. But when they compare that to the SGA kids, you look at their curves and it's like flat, meaning mm -hmm. no matter what their platelet count is, there's almost like no response mm -hmm. to a decreasing platelet count. Yeah, and they have like a decreased sensitivity. Yeah. And so they're, what they're saying is immature platelet factor increased with thrombocytopenia to promote platelet production in non-SGA infants due to increasing uh, thrombopoietin, but not in SGA infants. This study found an association between insufficient TPO, thrombopoietin production, and thrombocytopenia in SGA infants. In addition, this study is important for understanding the etiology of thrombocytopenia in SGA mm -hmm. infants. So I thought that was very interesting because, I mean, we know these kids are thrombocytopenic. We just never really know why. Why? Um, so I thought that was, that was great. And it's just so neat because it's the opposite with EPO, right? So the SGA babies have more EPO. And they can have even polycythemia. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you go in the, in the, I think it's, it's figure three C and D that are not the best to look at, but they're the ones telling the picture. Okay. Another paper that uh, you're going to like is called um, Longitudinal Changes in Lung Function in mm -hmm. Very Prematurely Born Young People Receiving High Frequency Oscillation or Conventional Ventilation from Birth. First mm -hmm. author is Alessandra Biscara. This is from London, UK. So, I especially like that they call them young people. <laughs> so this study is insane. They um, basically, they had this study called the High Frequency uh, the, the United Kingdom Oscillation Study, where uh, they had randomized these kids to high-frequency oscillation at birth or conventional ventilation. And they're now assessing these kids for pulmonary function at uh, 14 years of age and 19 years of age. And their, their question is, does it make a difference whether you're on high-frequency or conventional ventilation for your pulmonary function testing in young adulthood? Yeah. So, I mean... Not that it's going to make a difference on a day-to-day -day basis, but this was very, very interesting. So let me, mm -hmm. um, so number one, the babies that we're looking at, despite the fact that they're 20 years old now, they were small. So like mm -hmm. mean gestational age was 27 weeks. Um, and then the birth weight was like 900, 800 grams. So they were, they were tiny. Um, let me give you some, some results. So they didn't find any difference in the, in the lung 
function, right? So there were uh, significant changes in the mean FEF75, FEF50, FEF25, FEV1, FEVC, and DLCOZ scores within the conventional ventilation and high-frequency cohort, but no mm-hmm. significant difference in the changes between the two groups, okay? Um, now, so there was no difference. But some interesting stuff. The slope of the mean trajectory for FEV1 over FVC Z-score. So if you remember, FEV1 over FVC, it's a marker where you could actually, dis- if, if the ratio is normal, but both factors are low, it's a restrictive pattern of lung disease. Mm-hmm. If, if FEV1 is reduced and it's an obstructive pattern. So what they found was the FEV1 over FVC Z-scores um, differed significantly by the mode of ventilation. And the Z-scores were much worse at 11 years of age in the conventional ventilation Mm -hmm. group, minus 2.43 compared to minus 1.73 at 11 years in the high-frequency group. However, when they looked at the same kids at 19 years of age, they had cut up. So the mean ratio increased by 0.08 Z-score per year for the conventional ventilation group compared to a decrease of minus 0.01 Z-score per year in the high-frequency group. Despite the changes in slopes, the mean Z-scores in both groups remain low with predicted values less than minus 1.7 Z-scores at 19 years of age. So there were some difference um, mm-hmm. before 19 years of age. Another interesting thing is factors associated with deterioration in lung functions. Um, those whose lung function scores decreased from the age of 11 to 14 to 16 to 19 years old tended to be male, born to Mm. mothers of white ethnicity, have lower mean gestational age, lower mean birth weight, received postnatal corticosteroids, and were oxygen dependent at 36 weeks postmenstrual age. Mode of ventilation was not associated with deterioration in lung function, with the exception of FEV1 over FVC, favoring those conventionally ventilated um so that was that was very interesting yeah it's especially interesting because you know in in you know 20 in two decades we've come a long way in what we do on the say the the conventional ventilator Uh so uh, it's interesting Okay, another paper published in Pediatrics. It's called Dextrose Gel for Neonates at Mm -hmm. Risk with Asymptomatic Hypoglycemia, a Randomized Clinical Trial. First author is Kirti Gupta. This is a paper out of India. So we know that if you give glucose gel, you reduce Mm -hmm. admissions to the NICU, right? Mm -hmm. But what they wanted to look at was what if we looked at a specific three cohorts of people, small forest gestational age or IUGR, infants of diabetic mother uh, and large for gestational age, and late preterm infants. And they looked at these three groups and they looked at either babies who received dextrose gel followed by breastfeeding or a control group that just got mm-hmm. breastfeeding. Um, so they had 630 infants, 46% developed asymptomatic hypoglycemia. Um, and then 50% in the dextrose gel group and 49.6% in the uh, just control. They were. Um, they had a bunch of babies, right? They had 97, mm-hmm. 98, and 96 infants in the SGA, UGR, IDM, LGA, and, low, and the late preterm categories, respectively. Treatment failure in the dextrose gel group was 11% compared to 40% mm-hmm. in the control with a risk ratio of 0.28. For the people who are doing this with me, the risk, the risk ratio is a measure of the risk of a certain event happening in one group compared to the same event happening mm-hmm. in another group. And if it's one, there's no risk. If it's above one, it's an increased risk of the outcome. If it's less than one, it's a reduced mm-hmm. risk. So in this case, it's 0.28. Treatment failure was significantly less in the dextrose group in all three categories mm-hmm. with a risk ratio of 0.29 and 0. 0.2, 0. 0.31, 0. 0.29, 0. 0.31, and 0.24 respectively. Dextrogel reduces the need for IV fluids and in at-risk neonates with asymptomatic hypoglycemia in the first 48 hours of life. So not only is dextrogel good, it works even in those uh, high-risk populations. Which is neat because there are lots of times where you're like, well, we'll try, well, let's try the gel, but you know, it's probably not going to work. <laughs> and it does sometimes right. work. <laughs> um, all right. Next one in the grab bag. It's called, it's an ACTA pediatrica. It's called the five minute mm-hmm. APGAR score and childhood mm-hmm. school outcomes. This paper was freaking nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's basically trying to examine the association between APGAR scores yeah. at five minutes and childhood developmental and educational outcome. So um, I'm going to, so I'm going to redo the thing. Um, 
So they looked at babies that were born at 37 weeks or more. And basically, they used this thing called the NAPLAN, which is in Australia, it's basically a school assessment that kids go through at grades three, five, seven, and nine. So it was not like a Bailey or something like that. It was like a school mm -hmm. assessment that they used. And what they did is that they used, they looked at the APGAR scores of these kids, right? And the problem, I mean, the problem, the problem is that they give APGARs of 10 to kids. Mm -hmm. So 21% of the kids had an APGAR of 10 at five minutes. I tried to give a 10 of APGAR as a resident. I got <laughs> yelled at. So they, they, they use this, right, as the reference. because And it's important for me to mention this because you'll see how the data just starts getting a little bit fishy. No, not fishy. You see how like the data, the outcomes start not making too much sense. Because you have to understand, they're using Abgar of 10 at five minutes as the as the gold standard. And mm -hmm. then that was 21% of their cohort. They didn't really look at anything clinical related to the NICU, right? I mean, they just looked at whether the kids were admitted to the NICU right. or not. And so then the- Well, and we know that Abgars are still- so subjective, so right. subjective, right? And are you on respiratory support or are you not on respiratory support? I, I mean, it's a it's a minefield. Right. <laughs> and so they, they say there was an inverse relationship between APGAR scores at five minutes and the proportion of infants with poor developmental and educational outcomes with the least favorable outcomes among infants with an APGAR score of zero to three. So far, I'm okay. Compared yeah, with, <laughs> with an APGAR score of 10. But sure. increasingly favorable outcomes seen in Ab with APGAR scores closer to 10. Now, why it's crazy is because if you look at the rest of the uh, of the results, they write APGAR scores of 7, 8, 9 were all associated with poorer developmental mm -hmm. outcomes. Mm -hmm. So first, when you read that, you're like, hey, what What now? Like, if you have a 9 at 5 minutes, it's, it's bad. <laughs> While APGAR scores of 7 and 8 were associated with poor educational outcomes at grade 3, 5, and 7, with progression through grades 3, 5, and 7, the extent of the difference in educational outcomes diminished. So there was some catch-up. But they're comparing to APGARs of 10. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, I mean, that paper, the reason I'm mentioning it is because you look at the title like me and you're like, oh, that's interesting. You read the results and you're like, wait, APGAR 7 is poor. And, and it's not, <laughs> right? They don't, they right. forget, like, they, like if you miss that 10 is the is the standard, you're like, wait, APGAR 9 is, is bad? Uh, I right. didn't know that. <laughs> um, and then... There were two other interesting paper, which I'm just going to mention you quickly. Could, you just couldn't help yourself. No, I mean, I reviewed them. I'm just, <laughs> I did the work. By the way, it takes us, for the people who don't know, it takes us hours to prepare for these journal clubs. So, if, if I mean, let's, let's show our work a little bit. This is called Detection and Impact of Genetic Disease in a Level 4 Intensive Care Unit. Lean Hagen is the first author from Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting. They looked at like their yeah. unit before and after. They implemented the use of more readily... Uh, available genetic testing. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that uh, the cost, I mean, individual genetic diagnoses had a higher mean NICU charges, 723,000 versus 417,000, wow. which are just insane numbers. Mm -hmm. um, but um, they said that they didn't, it didn't really increase the need for genetics services, but that they had a better understanding of the pathologies that were involving the babies. And I think this is something that, um, right, I mean, the conclusion were that the increased utilization of broad genetic testing improved the detection of genetic disease, but contributed minimally to the cost of care while bolstering the understanding of the patient's condition and prognosis. Mm -hmm. A very interesting article. You guys should really dig over the stuff that they detected. And then the final paper that I saw was called Understanding the Relative Contribution of Prematurity and Congenital Anomalies to the Neonatal Mortality. First author is Ciaran Fibs. Um, and I forget what this paper is from. It's in the Journal of Perinatology. But they basically looked within the states yeah, of California. Yeah, multi-state, yeah. Yeah, it's like they looked at California, Missouri, Pennsylvania, South Carolina from 2009 to 2011, and they looked at the contribution of preterm delivery and congenital anomaly to neonatal mortality. And what they did is that they looked at um, babies by gestational age, and then they classified certain anomalies, whether they could be lethal, whether they were not lethal, or whether there was no anomaly at all. Um, and they looked at how much contributes to neonatal mortality. And mm -hmm. the conclusion of the paper were that congenital anomalies are responsible for about 40% of neonatal yeah. death, while preterm without anomalies are responsible for over 50%. And um, 
you know, I think it's interesting to keep an eye on the proportion of, of mm -hmm. neonatal mortality and which one are associated with congenital anomalies, which one are not, which one are purely due to prematurity. Uh, obviously, this was retrospective. This was a database study. They had to look at death certificates. It was, I mean, obviously some pitfalls there, but it was a good study. Um, and I recommend, uh, I recommend reading it. Um, in total, what did they say? 59% of the deaths had an ICD-9 code for an anomaly. Only 43% had a potentially fatal anomaly, and only 34% had a death certificate anomaly, which means that on the mm. death certificate, they actually mentioned, right? I'm mm -hmm. saying like this kid had um, diaphragmatic mm -hmm. agenesis, <laughs> right? Um, That'll do it. Yeah, that, right. I'm just trying to find something over it. Preterm infants accounted for 80% of deaths. Those preterm infants without a potentially fatal anomaly diagnosis comprised 53% of all neonatal deaths, which I think was interesting because, again, I don't think it means they didn't have an anomaly, right? If you think about the paper we just talked about, if you did genetic testing, mm -hmm. maybe you did, you could have found something. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not that they're just preterm. So these papers sometimes tie in very well, um, but that was... That was that was it. That's all I have for today. You were gonna tell us about this policy statement. I was actually. I mean, I. I so there's a policy statement. Um, you see, you're keeping me honest there. No? <laughs> um, so in pediatrics, the the committee uh, on the fetus and newborn published in uh, pediatrics the postnatal corticosteroid to prevent mm -hmm. or treat chronic lung disease following preterm birth. Um, you just didn't. You didn't. You didn't want to get into this. I mean, it's water. a policy statement, um, and it goes over the different. Um, it goes over the different uh, steroids: dexamethasone, hydrocortisone. Looking at them for the treatment of chronic lung disease. Looking at them for the prevention: low dose versus high dose. And it's a it's a review, basically, right? Um, the first author is James Cummings and um, Arun Pramanik are the authors. So. We, we've, it's we've, a, I mean, it's a really great review. Yeah, for I mean, sure. They always, it's always great. They look at also the, the outcomes at school age, and um, and they have recommendations. Obviously, if you want, we can go over quickly over the recommendations of the of the coffin, which is that number one, the routine use of post postnatal corticosteroids cannot be recommended. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it has to be a risk assessment. The decision to use steroids to prevent or treat. Uh, chronic lung disease or bronchopulmonary dysplasia should be individualized, made together with the parents, and the discussion should be documented in the patient's medical record. <clears throat> Point number three is that if a decision is made to administer steroids, a low dose provided for a short mm -hmm. predefined duration is recommended. If the infant does not show a clinical response to corticosteroids within 72 hours of initiation, continued treatment is not recommended. That's the thing that everybody talks about all the time, which is if you start them and you're not seeing a response and they're not like the, the steroids responder, should you yeah. take them off? Right. So <clears throat> the policy statement is that you should stop it. High-dose uh, steroids are not recommended to prevent or treat chronic lung disease in preterm infants. And finally, indomethacin should not be used concurrently with corticosteroids. Mm -hmm. This was discovered by our friend, Dr. Christy Waterberg, mm -hmm. who came on the podcast. Go check out this episode if you haven't listened to it yet. Did I forget anything, Daphne? No, I think I think <laughs> we're all caught up now. We're all caught up now. We're well, up. we wanted to make sure... Nobody missed anything while we were gone. <laughs> right, right. And we're hoping that this is helpful. So, um, yeah, thank you to everybody who's engaging with us on Twitter. We got some very uh, nice feedback. And um, for the people who uh, are using the website, we have a new website called uh, that you can reach www.the-incubator.org. The other sites are still working. NICUpodcast.com is still working. NICUboardReview.com is still working. But uh, we've tried to make everything in one place. So uh, you can see all the th things we're up to. All right. That's all I have for us tonight, Daphna. Sounds good, buddy. All right. See you, see you, um, see you Monday for um, board review. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at drnicu, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.
This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.